From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP podcast. I'm your host, Mazi Dar. With Canopy in particular, I mean, I just can't say enough good things about them. They had spent the bulk of the last year just trying to add value to our business. People make fun of the value add VC trope, rightfully so. But with Canopy, they just spent so much time working with us on pitching banks. That's Laura Speakerman. She's the co-founder and chief revenue officer at Alloy, the identity operating system for banks and emerging fintechs. Laura joins me to talk about her path to fintech, Alloy's most recent fundraise, which was just announced, and she shares her thoughts on how we can all help to improve diversity. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Where are you today? I am in apocalyptic Oakland, California, where we are covered in ash and there's a weird orange glow all around us. Wow. That's all you needed at this point. (laughs) That is, yep. The hits just keep on coming in 2020. It sure does. Laura, I would love to start by digging a little bit into your background and going back to college. I know that you wrote a thesis on microfinance, and I was curious how you decided to do that and what piqued your interest in that in the first place. Yeah, I um, studied abroad my junior year of college. I studied abroad in West Africa in Senegal, and I had chosen Senegal because I wanted to go to a French-speaking country just wanted to see somewhere other than France, not that there's anything wrong with France, and chose Senegal sort of on a whim, ended up there, this is 2007, was really struck by the ubiquity of mobile phones at that point. I was pretty naive about sort of the underdeveloped world and went there not knowing what to expect, but seeing cell phones everywhere, even kind of kids with cell phones at that point, these were all feature phones or sort of dumb phones. And started realizing that there was just a ton of potential in having access to something like that. And so eventually was kind of thinking about the power of financial services and how all of that played into the phone being a method of distribution and access. And so wrote my thesis on microfinance when I was back in New York my senior year and was looking sort of at the history of microfinance and how it's evolved from Tontines are very kind of in-person groups of women, usually 10 to 30 women who are effectively vouching for each other and paying for each other and has evolved over time into what we see today, which is a, I think Tontines still exists certainly, but there's really a more kind of modern method of distribution over mobile phones and rails like M-Pesa in Kenya. Super interesting. So you graduated from Barnard and you went to a company called Copo Copo. Is that right? That's right. And tell us a little bit about that company. And I'm also interested to hear about the decision-making process to go to like a really early stage company straight out of college rather than say working for an established company. It's very generous to call it a decision-making process and actually is really just sort of my impulsive nature that got me there. I had spent a little bit of time working at a law firm in between. So I was really very much on the law school track in college and just after college, which I actually loved. I loved being a paralegal. I worked at a white collar criminal defense law firm and sort of despite potentially representing the the bad guys sometimes, I really loved the work. But I knew eventually as I was applying to law school and looking at the loans I was going to have to take out and thinking seriously about what that meant for my future, I really decided it wasn't what I wanted to commit myself to at that point. 
And I thought, what else do I like doing? <laughs> and I sort of had to go back to the drawing board. And my experience of spending time with microfinance and microentrepreneurs in West Africa the prior year really stuck out to me or two years before. And I said, let me figure out what kind of careers intersect there or not careers, even just sort of a job at that point. I think I just did a ton of Googling and found these two guys who were building a business. They'd started a software company that would allow microfinance institutions to disperse and collect microfinance payments via M-Pesa. So M-Pesa was this system. It's run by the telco. So the equivalent here would be offered by Verizon, for example. And it exists in East Africa. It was really born in Kenya. And now I think something like three quarters or more of adult Kenyans use it. So it's very widely used to transfer money. And they'd come up with a software that would allow merchants to use it. So initially it was really just microfinance institutions. But once I got there, I joined them. We started looking at different applications and figuring lots of businesses need this. A barbershop could use this. So we sort of explored how else mobile money could be used in small business. And that was my first kind of foray into entrepreneurship. I want to back up real quick and press you on this point a little bit. So yeah. how did you do this? You just found these guys on the internet and cold called them and said, I want to come work at your company? Yes, <laughs> which sounds insane. I think that's exactly what I did. I wouldn't call it a tactic, but it is something I've done many times where I just sort of find something that I want to do and I email them and I, I find more often than not that cold calling actually is fairly effective when done properly. That's very interesting. We had Kim Trotman on this podcast and she talked through how she had sent cold emails to all sorts of people, including somebody at Goldman Sachs, eventually got her a job. But I don't think that's something that most people do. No. But that seems like an interesting pattern. It's only two data points now, but yeah, we're going to continue looking into that. I know another fintech entrepreneur who, another woman too, so I don't know if that's a pattern, but who also has relied on this tactic for her business and has found it really successful. So I think there's something there. Yeah, it sounds like there might be. So at this point, when you were at Covacopa, were you hooked on entrepreneurship or was it sort of like a, a first job and you still weren't sure what it is that you really wanted to do? I think I was pretty hooked on the idea of entrepreneurship. I didn't have a career path in mind. I had no idea what a career path could possibly look like. I had no idea what the subsequent job after this could look like. I just really liked the mission and I loved doing everything myself. So I built the business plan there, for example, which of course now feels a little silly because no one, I think, writes business plans anymore. But at the time, we did. And everything from fundraising to finding the first few customers to uncovering bugs in the product, I was getting to do myself. And I was someone who had you know, very few skills that were sort of directly applicable to doing this tech startup. But because they were so desperate, they needed someone to help. I was that lucky person. And I loved doing that. I just liked sort of not having that sort of layer in between me and whatever it was I was trying to accomplish. It was just sort of set out in the day. If it was call someone, if it was find a customer, if it was troubleshoot something, I could just do it myself without having to ask for permission. I think that's just something I'm generally a little bit allergic to and which makes me not a great employee. Not everybody's cut out to be an employee and all, the, all those things that you described are the fun things you get to do in a startup that you don't really get in a larger organization. <laughs> so I definitely know that feeling. I didn't do it myself 
until a few years into working. But once I got a taste of it, I definitely did not want to go back. Yeah, I worry about the future state of when, you know, someday we're acquired or I have to move on to a real job at some point and what that's going to be like for me. I think I'll have to go into therapy to have have to deal with (laughs) a, a real institution and bureaucracy and all that stuff. Now, we met in 2015 after you co-founded Alloy. Yep. So uh, tell everybody the problem that Alloy solves. And also, I know you had been at a previous company that helped create the demand or gave you the idea for Alloy. So uh, tell everybody about that experience and how you got going with Alloy. Yeah, my co-founders and I, Tommy and Charles, and I started this company in 2015, along with one of our engineers, Scott Clark who we'd all come from a previous payments company that you referenced where we were doing ACH transactions and trying to basically find a way to mitigate that three to five day ACH wait period that frustrates all of us when we're trying to sign up for a brokerage account or trying to fund our Bitcoin wallets or whatever it is. And we were trying to create a sort of instant user experience there at that company. And what we found was that roughly half the time, the challenges were not just around ACH, they're around identity. So a user is signing up to open an account of some kind, and that institution has a regulatory and business kind of fraud-related requirement to make sure that the user is who they say they are. When you do that by verifying name and address and social and all sorts of things against public records, for example. And there is no single government database that contains that information, at least not one that is accessible to us. So we rely on these public records databases like LexisNexis, for example, or or the credit bureaus. And they're imperfect because they don't know that you moved last month, for example. So what we realized was that identity was this huge challenge. And I'd seen that, I think, also in kind of the developing world where access was being solved, kind of distribution was being solved by mobile phones, like we talked about. But identity was still a challenge there too. So if you don't have nationally recognized identity, it's really hard to access the financial system. And so for us, that was a compelling enough problem and certainly an expensive enough problem that we saw from, you know, we were hearing about from fintech clients and some banks that we decided to go solve that. So in 2015, we left that company. We applied to Techstars in the summer of 2015 and started building that product. And what were the early days at Alloy like? It sounds like there were four of you who got going. How long did it take to get from the founding and the idea to you've got, let's say, your first customer? Yeah, there were. So there were actually six of us um, because two more people from that previous company had kind of joined us in our efforts who, who no longer are with Alloy but remain friends. Gosh, it was so long until it felt like we really had a truly marketable bank grade product. I think we were naive enough to think, oh, we can build this in six months and launch it with some fintech companies and sort of go the lean startup MVP route, not really realizing what that meant for real financial institutions. So once we got into it, you have to go through your SOC 2 data security audits and you have to get approval from LexisNexis and you have to make sure that your vendor due diligence processes and policies all are sort of up to snuff. And so it took us much longer than we anticipated to actually launch and get live. Not to mention just sort of the sales process is really hard when you can't, you know, you're trying to convince a bank to use your system that another bank doesn't use. They're going to be taking a huge risk with you and you have to find sort of the one or two banks that are really willing to take that risk, which eventually we 
did, but it was really a slog. So we, we raised money in the fall of 2015, which is when you and I met. And then I believe we launched a fintech product as a product with fintech companies in 2016. And we didn't launch with a bank until 2017, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. And I remember at the time you were also thinking about the route of focusing on fintechs or trying to get the larger bank customers. How did that end up shaking out? Did you find one or the other to be a better initial route or did you really kind of work on both in parallel? It's one where my decision paralysis or our collective decision paralysis at Alloy has actually benefited us. I think we thought we'd be forced into making a decision, particularly with the success of Plaid. I think that was sort of this North Star for people of, you know, you can build a business off of startups. I believe that's true. We've seen it work with Plaid very, very well. I think we started hearing just enough from banks. And then of course, banks have the sort of capitals to spend on these types of projects where we ultimately decided not to choose between the two and do both and have one inform the other. And whether or not that was entirely deliberate and well thought out, I couldn't really say that for sure. But I do think that as 2018 and 2019 showed, there was this kind of rebundling that was happening. And so it wasn't sort of just the same old story of banks and fintech companies competing with each other. And and that one was ultimately going to win. I think we saw that they were starting to increasingly work together. And then of course, kind of more recently in 2019, I suppose, and certainly 2020, we've seen banking as a service emerge. And so for us, that put us in a really good position where we've been able to serve both. We are used by both. We're friendly with both. We know how each operates now and how each buys this product and uses it. And I think that's put us in a really good position to kind of facilitate that relationship, which at times can really be awkward and sort of tension-filled because they're so different in so many ways, culturally and otherwise. Yeah. Now, I've known you and Tommy for five years now. And one of the things that has always really, really impressed me about you guys is just the determination and really also the creativity as entrepreneurs. You really stuck to your guns and found a way through difficult challenges. Where does that come from? Like, did you have that experience before Alloy that informed it? Or is that something that you just sort of learned in real time doing this new venture? Well, I'll speak for myself first. I think I have a pretty stubborn personality. And I also just like doing what I like doing. So if someone had told me, go build a business for banks only, I think I would have been out of there. It's not the type of work that would have kept me interested. I think I liked having that mix. And I think Tommy probably feels similarly that being able to build a product for both felt really important to us. Partly it's just a a personality thing of like, what do we like spending our days doing and what are we willing to kind of sacrifice to make this business work. And neither of us are willing to sacrifice enjoying our lives for five to 10 years. I think we want to enjoy talking to our clients and feeling really proud of our product and all that stuff. I think that's part of it. I think we also just were, the naivete really paid off. I think it had we come from a bank ourselves, particularly if we'd come from a compliance function at a bank, we never would have built the product or business that we have. So I think kind of approaching this from a you know, solving our own problem and fintech developer problems in particular was great because even though we've built this kind of compliance risk related product, we've come at it from a different angle. And I just don't think that same thing would have been possible if we'd had 
different backgrounds. We both were, and Charles too, we were just sort of dedicated to figuring out exactly how to solve this in a way that would benefit end users the most. And fintech developers maybe second to that, but certainly not compliance departments first. Not that we don't love compliance departments, but that was not our primary kind of user or target buyer here. That's really funny you should say that because the not knowing what you don't know, I think is a key advantage for many entrepreneurs. Because as you said, if you knew then what you know now, it might have depressed you enough to stop the mission midstream. Yeah, I think we would have quit a long time ago. (laughs) I have to admit, there were definitely some days way back when, when I thought, man, I don't know if this is 100% going to (laughs) work. But you guys have really just done a phenomenal job. And it's one of the reasons it's so exciting to speak to you right now, because you guys have just closed a new funding round. We have. We'll tell everybody who it's with, then I'm going to ask you a little bit about, about that process. Sure. So yeah, we're, we're uh, you were there at the very beginning when we could barely raise a you know, million and a half dollars, I think, which every penny was a struggle on that fundraise. And we just closed a Series B, a $40 million Series B, led by Canopy Ventures. And Walker Forehand did the deal there. He's co-founder and general partner there. And they'll be joining our board as well. We also had participation from Felicis Ventures and Avid Ventures. Amazing. Amazing. I Well, I happen to know some of the Canopy folks, the Underwood Brothers. What did that process look like? I know uh, particularly right now, a lot of fintech entrepreneurs are thinking about fundraising and, you know, it's generally understood not to be the best time to be fundraising. Um, What did that process look like for you guys? We raised a Series A last fall, 2019, led by Bessemer. And this is less than a year later, but I think Tommy and I started looking at what was happening to our business post-COVID or sort of during COVID, I suppose, and realizing that it was actually, there was sort of a slight net benefit going on. And simultaneously seeing that investors were really finally understanding sort of what digital transformation and financial services entailed and the role that digital identity in particular would play in this transformation. And I think, again, we have Plaid to credit for some of that. I think their acquisition, as well as the NCNO actually IPO, I think both of those things helped investors understand sort of what this market could look like. And so we started looking at that and saying, hey, maybe now is the time. We knew we didn't want to run a big process. So I think that was part of the decision-making was we're really interested in raising some money right now and putting the kind of pedal to the metal a little bit and seeing where we can grow. The conditions that COVID has put us under, we really don't want to run a big process. We want to get to know the people that we're going to work with. We want to be able to have a longstanding relationship with them. And we're not going to be able to do that just with a bunch of 30-minute Zoom meetings. So we put together a list of the five or six investors that we felt like truly had understood our business that we'd gotten to know almost exclusively that we'd gotten to know prior to this year where we'd spent some time with them either in the Series A process or, or otherwise and said, hey, does this sound like something you guys want to do? And so we did it all in about two weeks, actually. It was a really fast process, sort of took wow. us by surprise how quickly it happened. And with Canopy in particular, I mean, I just can't say enough good things about them. They had spent the bulk of the last year just trying to add value to our business. People make fun of the value add VC trope, rightfully so. But with Canopy, they just spent so much time 
working with us on pitching banks. They have a very interesting structure where their LP base is largely the banks that we try to sell to or that already are our clients, about 35 of them. And so for us, that was a huge help to have them almost be kind of the sales team or business development team for those banks and helping us understand what the executives at those banks were worried about. And so we saw that transform into real traction in the last six months when they weren't invested. And we thought like, this is going to be perfect. If they have a real stake in the company, they're going to be even more motivated to help us get to know these, this kind of category of institution. And as you know, from sort of what our team looks like relative to their team, very few of our team members are former bankers or deeply steeped in the kind of banking and compliance world where I think having them as sort of an adjunct member of our team has been hugely helpful because of that. They can sort of bolster that gap that we might have. Definitely. I know that they are an ideal partner. I'm super excited that you're working with them and that you've got that close. It's just fantastic. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Can you talk a little bit about your growth plans? Like what is the end of 2020 and into 2021 look like for you? We're still building out 2021 plans. The primary investment, which won't surprise anyone, is really going to be in the team. The thing we discovered, I mean, we knew it, but really looking at our Series B metrics, the sales metrics in particular, were hyper-efficient and sort of too efficient right now on sales and marketing. We'd hired our sales team earlier this year, I guess January, February of this year, and ramped it up really quickly, and they're phenomenal. We had a marketing team of one until yesterday we had a a new team member start to lead marketing. But we realized if we're doing what we're doing right now for performing as well as we're performing with this small investment in sales and marketing, and we saw that uptick materialize in, in Q1 and Q2 of this year, what could we do with a little more firepower there? And so a lot of it's going to be focused on building out the go to market team to sort of get this double down on where we're really successful. I think a lot of that has been in partnerships, particularly partnerships that target community banks and credit unions, and then kind of regional banks as well, sort of larger, you know, 30 billion plus banks that have a digital consumer or small business offering. That's sort of where we're doubling down. The other side of this is product development. And this is, I think that we're taking sort of the approach of, you know, we're solving this problem for institutions who need to identify applicants generally at onboarding. But what we've realized over the years of running Alloy is that there's so many more times where you need to make a decision about that identity again or that that user again. So when they go make a high value transaction, when they're on a device you haven't seen before, when they are transacting a large amount of money to a country that looks a little suspicious. All those types of transactions are moments where you need to make that decision again about that user. And so we're investing now in sort of extending our product offering to solve those other instant transaction or kind of instant decision moments for our clients. You talked a little bit about this before, but can you tell everybody a little bit more about how you're seeing COVID impact the current environment for you? In March... I think like everyone else felt like we were deer in headlights and trying to just figure out for about two weeks what was going on. Is this the end of the world? Is this the end of our business? Are we going to have to do layoffs? I think we had the same set of questions that everyone did. And that was compounded by the fact that our bank prospects in particular 
weren't calling us back, right? So there was like two weeks where we just weren't hearing from them. And we thought, oh my God, what's, you know, this is the end. And then we realized they were just trying to figure out how, how to work from home. So they spent two weeks trying to like get VPN access and all that stuff. So it was much more logistically difficult for them to work from home than it was for us as, you know, startup community. So once we figured that out, we started just being really careful about planning. We were so lucky. We didn't have to do any layoffs. Our team remains intact. And in fact, we've been growing like crazy. But we took a look at our business, cut it across a bunch of different use cases and demographics, and saw that, well, of course, there was some fallout, particularly with early stage fintech companies who had just unlucky timing where they needed to go raise right then in order to survive. Or if they were in credit products, which have suffered more than other products, apart from a couple of segments, our clients were doubling down on digital channels. So of course, the fintech companies that comes naturally, and they were seeing increased traffic for the most part. But banks were also saying, hey, you know, that 2021 digital transformation project we've been talking about, we got to do it this year instead. Or when the PPP lending stuff came about, they similarly came to us and said, how do I stand up? You know, it's Thursday and the Trump administration has told us we have to stand this up by Monday. How do we do this? And so we were these kind of consultants to some of these institutions and how to move quickly and how to create a, a digital strategy that wasn't going to crush them financially or under the weight of fraud, which I think was one of the major concerns for them. Right, right. Yeah, it's really interesting how it's had, as you said, negative impacts on the environment, but also has created some new opportunities and some new ways of thinking that can be positive as well. It sounds like it's been a net positive for you guys. It has been. It has been a net positive yeah. and I think has helped banks think about longer term strategies that maybe they were putting off or maybe felt like too big of an investment or too scary to do, but we're inevitable no matter what. The world is moving online. You have to figure out how to offer something other than someone walking into your branch to do any real transaction or open right. an account. So I think it was inevitable, but unfortunate, of course, that it happened in these circumstances, but has really been transformative this year. Yeah. Now, do you have advice for fintech entrepreneurs who are fundraising right now? My view is really narrow on B2B and kind of infrastructure in fintech, where I think, and you're probably seeing this as well, I think the demand is so high for products and services like ours right now, where just being able to fulfill demand for this, and then, but also kind of consult alongside. So helping the industry transform itself, I think is the most important piece to our success, not just from a fundraising perspective, but from a mm -hmm. client perspective, is you're sort of teaching this legacy industry, how to modernize really quickly. I think the VC world is waking up to that. So I think they're getting it. On the B2C front, my only advice is raise what you can now and just try to hang on. There's no doubt in my mind, like FinTech is coming back across all categories, across all demographics, whether we like it or not. It's just going through a really tough moment right now. And so hanging on and surviving is like the single most important thing you can do and also puts you in a better position, of course, for fundraising because we all know it's easier to raise and talk to investors when you don't need their money and they're always much more open to writing you a check when you don't seem desperate. Right, right. That's great advice. Now, I heard you talking about power posing. <laughs> Did you do any of that before your VC meetings? I didn't on Zoom. 
Although maybe that's like a new form of power posing is how to power pose before Zoom meetings this time. (laughs) I will say, I think it's very effective, particularly for people who just feel less confident. I think there's a a huge role that confidence and potentially overconfidence plays in fundraising. So I really believe in trying to make yourself the most confident you possibly can. I know a lawyer friend of mine who, whenever she has to talk to her boss on the phone for something important, even though they can't see her and, and she can't see them, she puts on high heels to have that conversation. So I think whatever makes you feel more confident is the way to go on Zoom who knows what that looks like in this particular fundraise. I have to say I was pregnant and trying to figure out how to deal with COVID and a dog barking in the background and a husband who was annoyed with all my Zoom calls. So I certainly didn't optimize much for my appearance in this fundraising round, but I think whatever makes you feel good is the way to think about it. That is amazing. I did not know that you were pregnant during this process. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been odd being pregnant sort of in quarantine. So (laughs) I just have this secret pregnancy, which then of course, after we signed a term sheet, I had to tell our new investors about because they couldn't see that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, at this point, I would be remiss if I didn't tell this story about one of the fundraising meetings that has been down in (laughs) Tribeca Early Stage Partners lore. You know exactly. I do. I do. Yeah, I was waiting for this to come up. Do you want to tell everybody what happened? (laughs) Well, I I am delighted to tell the story because I actually wasn't there at this particular meeting that has gone down in infamy at Alloy as Shirtgate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's still very widely talked about. My co founders, Tommy and Charles, are lovely, smart people, but not the best dressers and not the most professional looking people in the world. And I think especially in 2015, we were all younger and more naive than they younger than I am, unfortunately. And for some reason, I actually don't know why I couldn't make it that day. I think Charles went in my place because of that. He doesn't normally do any of the fundraising, but Charles and Tommy went to pitch Tribeca Angels and naturally (laughs) they showed up in, I think, shorts and t-shirts to do their pitch and I guess you can weigh in, but it was not particularly well received. (laughs) And we got a call from Jenny Fielding saying, there's a problem. (laughs) They did not think that that went well. What were you wearing? What happened? And so from then on, Tommy, I think Jenny forced, or maybe I forced, I don't even know. Jenny and I probably together forced Tommy to keep a long sleeve button up shirt at the (laughs) office. (laughs) It's probably still sitting in the texter's office actually. And that he would have to wear it whenever he had any important meeting, but particularly VC meetings from then on. And it really has become sort of alloy lore. And we talk about it all the time. And I still have to remind him periodically, we've tried to upgrade his wardrobe even more on occasion, as have many of our investors. That is so funny. I I remember it really, really well. And it actually didn't even occur to me. John McAvoy brought it up after the meeting. (laughs) And I mean, in some quarters, if you dress too well, that would be the problem. Yeah. The tuxedo and the Rolex. <laughs> That's right. They want you showing up in the t-shirt. and But this crew definitely wanted to see it buttoned down. So <laughs> Tommy, to his credit, was he took it on the chin. He got back in there with the button down and it all worked out. So kudos to you guys for turning that around. It's one good thing about having a, a young, naive team is that I think we all are eminently coachable. And so we're not going to take huge offense or dig into something. We want to remain flexible. And so I, I will give him credit for being willing to occasionally upgrade his wardrobe or wear something that we've asked him to wear when he needs to. That's great. 
That's great. I also want to ask you about advice that you might have for women who are aspiring to be fintech founders. There are some things in your bio, I think, that helped you in that direction. But what are some things that you think women in the space need to know? Because you're kind of a like a unicorn, like a female fintech founder. There aren't that many yeah. in our space, unfortunately. What are some things you think women can do to head down that path? Yeah, I think the kind of confidence and power posing stuff was important for me. And I think that's something that if you, there are women who are plenty confident and they only suffer from the perception from the outside, not from what they themselves could be doing. So very little to control there. But for those of us who I think don't feel naturally super confident or aren't the loudest people in the room or whatever, I think it's helpful to understand how you at least can sort of fake it till you make it or how to get more comfortable whether it's authentic or not. So that's one piece. I think the second is just being willing to network a lot and find the people who can help you. So for me, that really meant cold emailing, cold calling was part of that. And I think in that sense, I just, I've always been sort of a risk taker and willing to put myself out there. And that's truly, truly paid off obviously in many ways, but that's one where I think just sort of being willing to be vulnerable helps you and also tends to have an effect on people where they're willing to sort of spend time with you or invest in you a little bit. And I've done that, I think for every job I've ever gotten, that's exactly how I've done it. And it's worked. It's never been sort of a matter of like serious connections or anything. I just sort of am like, Hey, like I want this one thing. Let me email this one person and see if they'll spend time. And that's always worked for me. Networking sort of more professionally has been really critical and it sort of sucks that it's not as natural for us that we're not born into it. And it's not as organic as it is for men. Again, not because of our personalities. I think we're actually certain ways many women are better suited for it, but it's not sitting there on a platter for you. You have to work harder for it. So that means both networking with other women. I think there's some great groups out there. Nikki Galimas from Nova Credit started a group of female fintech founders, VCs, senior operators. That's been great because then you sort of meet women like yourself, or in my case, I met a lot of women who were like a step ahead of me or two steps ahead of me that were fantastic to get to know and just super helpful for my own career development and building this company. And then also networking with men, right? Like finding the sort of men who are going to be willing to invest in you and who can help you. And they obviously have a lot more power than we do. So finding the ones who care about you are going to, is going to be really critical. I point to people like Aaron Frank, who co-founded Final Card, which was acquired by Goldman Sachs. He's one of those people for me where I met him early on and he just was willing to go to bat for me and eventually for Alloy as well. So that was really helpful. Ultimately, this advice is hard to give because I think most advice should focus on men, not women. It should be like, what can men do differently to not be so discriminatory and create this environment. But to the extent we as women can control anything, those are the the things I suggest. That is a terrific point uh, that you make about men. Before we get to that, because we will, I just want to say that people need role models. I think you're a terrific role model. You're blazing a trail here in this space. So I think that will inspire others to do the same. So now let's talk a little bit about the men, because this shouldn't have to be your burden or the burden of women, as you said, to solve the diversity problem, particularly in the fintech space. Now, we have spent some time, we're going to spend more on diversity with a number of guests, both men and women. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on some specific things we can all do to improve gender diversity and diversity more broadly in the fintech space. Yeah, it's something we're working on at Alloy quite a bit. So, and I think lots of companies are right now. And there's no silver bullet. There's no kind of answer. We're all struggling with it. I think the thing that we did early, and I'd say we did this with gender diversity, but not racial diversity nearly as as much, was that just investing really early made a huge difference. So it sounds simple and kind of stupid. And I remember people saying this to me and I didn't really get it when we were like five people. Cause it was like, yeah, we just, but we just need someone to do the job. Like we can't try to spend six months interviewing people to try to find the perfect person. When we did start, whether purposeful or not, started hiring some women, it just got infinitely easier. So from then on, having women walk into the office to interview, they would see more women and feel instantly more comfortable. They weren't in a panel interview being just sort of grilled by a group of men. We got tons of feedback that that was really effective. We also just had a larger network to tap into. So we hired women who knew other women and were willing to refer them for roles or who were parts of various women in fintech groups, for example. That's been really powerful for us. And again, not something that we've done nearly as well and in racial diversity and we have to do better, but it's it's sort of the only tactic I've seen really pay off. And also, of course, means that then you build a better team as a result of it. Even at the time you're doing it potentially more for, for optics or something else, I think it's going to force you to build a, a much better team. On the racial diversity front, we're trying a number of things right now. One of the things we're doing is we've hired a, a couple of different firms to help us. So audit our existing practices when it comes to compensation, hiring, recruiting, all of that stuff. And I think just bringing in professionals here is really key. I've seen some companies try to do this themselves, even companies with big HR departments. And it just feels like you really need outside help. You need someone who's been at multiple organizations and seen what works and what do- what doesn't. And that you don't have that sort of person who's just reporting directly to the CEO who maybe wants to keep the status quo. So for us, getting outside help, I think, was really, really key. And we'll, of course, see how it goes. And then I think just having a process where you're not as desperate as you were to hire that one person and saying, instead, let's just try to find the best person or best five final candidates. Let's sacrifice maybe a month longer process, which, of course, in startup time feels endless and might mean that you delay something because of it, or you don't do everything that you wanted to accomplish that quarter, but means you'll find a better person in the end. So for us, building that discipline around not just jumping to a conclusion of finding that white guy's white guy friend and hiring him has been really important. That is all very, very good advice. I've been taking notes as you've been speaking. I have to give a Shout out to Kim Nguyen on our team, who is the director of people operations. She's the one who keeps us incredibly disciplined about this. So I also think having just someone who is willing to put their foot down, she's earned sort of the right to do that and earned our respect, but puts our foot down with the executive team and says like, no, you can't do this again. Or, you know, I know you're desperate, but we don't want to make that offer until we've talked to two other people or whatever. So just that kind of constant reminder, even if you're feeling like you just want to break the rules this one time, it's just made us a lot better. And the second thing I would add is I really am disappointed in the investor community for talking a lot about this, but then no one has ever asked us for it in like a board update, for example. 
like a quarterly report that we're issuing to them. It has all of our financial and sales metrics, but no one's ever asked us about this. And I suspect it's because their LPs don't ask them. But I think that's hugely disappointing and it would be a really easy way to strong arm even the teams who might be resistant to this stuff into actually doing it and putting some of it into action. Yeah. We had Paul Walker on the podcast and Paul is on OpenFin's board. Yeah. And he talked about this. He talked about how as a board member, just by asking some questions about this topic, you can change how an organization reacts and how an organization works. It's one of the things that he talks to me about and asks us about That's great. how we're doing on diversity, also on pay equity and do compensation. We're, we're looking to make sure that we're at similar levels and similar roles. We're paying fairly to men and women. Yeah, it absolutely changes the dynamic when the board is actively involved and the board is asking those kinds of questions for sure. Yeah, it does. And we're lucky we have board members who do care deeply about this. I just think it should be normal to report on this right. regularly. So I think it's it'll get there eventually. I guess it has to come from LPs and I don't know what that dynamic is like right now, but hopefully LPs are asking their GPs to be taking this seriously and have it be a part of diligence and ongoing reporting. Yeah, that's a great point. And hopefully somebody out there is listening to this and will start to act on this. Yes. So Laura, this has been really fun. Before I let you go, I saw you tweeting about basketball. I did. Yes. I assumed you you had at least a mild <laughs> mild interest in, yeah. in the NBA. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you tell us who your favorite team is? Well, the easy answer is the Warriors because I'm in Oakland and until this year they were the best. And so it was easy to be a Fairweather fan which I think is even generous to call me a Fairweather fan, but... They picked a good year to be bad. They did. That's right. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. They're not in the bubble and they're probably not mad about it. My husband is a diehard Chicago Bulls fan. And so I sort of by osmosis with him and being forced to watch The Last Dance several times (laughs) over (laughs) during COVID. I think I've absorbed some of the kind of Bulls hype, although I think this is the 90s Bulls, so it doesn't match up to today. But those are the sort of two teams that we have things around the house for. My husband's a, a writer and is about to publish. He's just finished his first book, which is a book about basketball. And he oh, also wow. covers basketball for Slate. So I do end up tweeting quite a bit about basketball, but it doesn't mean I know a ton about basketball. Very cool. What's the name of the book? It's called How to Watch Basketball Like a Genius. Nice. I like that. I think it's available for pre-order very shortly, maybe even now. Excellent. Well, it's good that we got that plug in. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I'll be happy. Do you have any predictions for who's going to win the championship this year? I have some expert (laughs) advice and I've learned that it's likely to potentially come from the West. So Clippers or Lakers, although I've been, we've been very impressed by Boston this year as well. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Those are good picks. Yeah. Thank you. uh, Thank you. One one, one of those three, I think is quite likely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have been a lifelong Laker fan, but. Oh, um, great. I'm a not LeBron fan. I'm a, I, yeah. I love LeBron off the court, but yep. I'm not the hugest fan on the court. Yeah. So I've been I've been more of a Warriors fan like you yeah. as of late. The Warriors are so fun to watch and they're kind of fun personalities. LeBron is, I think like you're saying, he's his off the court stuff actually has been incredibly impressive recently, right? With his yeah. his voting initiatives and has I think made a huge difference in not not just voting, but even just sort of the reaction to COVID in general. I think the the NBA has done a phenomenal job 
And so I've been, sure. I've been really impressed by that and then his leadership there. It's a, a super exciting time in the NBA right now, I think, with both them playing in the bubble, but also everything that's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. and then the leadership that they've shown there. So it's really great to watch. And as you said, his off the court leadership has been amazing. Yeah. On that note, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and congrats again on the fundraise. Thank you, Mazi. This was fun. And thanks for sticking with us all these years, despite Shirtgate and many bumps in between. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an awesome ride. All right. Thanks, Mazi. I'd like to thank Laura for joining us and you for listening. John Siracusa is our show's producer. You can also hear John interview fintech founders and the VCs who fund them on the Bank On It podcast. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast. Mm-hmm.